crime novelist and award-winning journalist, film director and author Maggie Orford was born in London and grew up in Namibia and South Africa. Like Clockwork is her first novel. She lives in Cape Town. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You spent some time in prison. I did, twice. Okay. The most recent stint was a year-long creative writing workshop that I held in the Hood Drakenstein prison, which is about an hour out of Cape Town. I worked with a group of 15 men doing a creative writing workshop every Friday. I go there every Friday from 9 till 12, and I worked with them for a year. You produced this book called 15 Men, Words and Images from Behind Bars. That's right. That was um, the book that we put together, which was published right at the end of the project by Jonathan Ball, who I probably criminally arm-twisted into publishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I'd like to do is is to riff off the introduction that you wrote for this book, because it has some interesting things to say about the writing process and the benefits of writing, and uh, particularly to these uh, men who had very like most prisoners, difficult childhood. So, let's start off with, uh, I'll just read a bit here. Nine months later, I have piles of handwritten stories and poetry on my desk. The paper carries with it the unique smell of prison and a dusty grey hopelessness of lives turned to ash. It turns the stomach, and yet the writing, much of which did not make it into the final selection, speaks to me of quiet heroism they resisted the inertia that creeps into the bones. I can smell that prison smell right now. I still have those piles of writing here on my desk. And there's something very particular about prison and about the experience of prison, which for me, writing is a counteraction to that. Part of my connection with these men, apart from the fact that I worked with them, is that um, I'd been detained when I was a student in the mid-80s. And I was detained under the emergency laws in South Africa, as they were then, which was indefinite detention. So I sat in a maximum security prison, not the same one as they were in. Like Guantanamo? <sighs> no. Polesmore. I was in Polesmore Prison, which is a terrible, terrible maximum security prison. Now, if you've read Michel Foucault's Panopticon, it was designed along those lines. And the thing that struck me was the hopelessness of trying to imagine time in a place where all control of time is taken away from you. Absolutely all control. You're fed at specific hours, you go to the bathroom in toilets that have no doors, you shower, you exercise for half an hour. You can make not even decisions around body function inside a prison, even if it's benign, mm-hmm. even if it's, um, you know, you're not being tortured or anything. Mm-hmm. There's a removal. Lack of, lack of freedom. Yeah, a removal of the self. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. how I experienced it. Um, and when I worked with these men, there was I had this I didn't expect it, but this bizarre flashback to the sense of of the hopelessness of time. And what kept me going, I wasn't in prison for very long, but was the life of the mind and the imagination and how writing. How long were you in there for? A few weeks. Yeah, still. But at that age, wrote, it must have been yeah, traumatizing. I was, I was 20, and I wrote my finals <laughs> in prison. I wrote philosophy. My final exam on philosophy and the first question I got was, does the external world exist? Discuss. <laughs> I hadn't seen anybody and so I wasn't quite sure about how to answer that one. The second one I had was, is there a role of tr- for truth and justice in our society? Discuss. 
So it focuses the mind. But I found with the, the men that I worked with, they were all maximum security prison prisoners. Some were medium. In South Africa, if you're a medium security prisoner, it doesn't mean you committed a medium crime. It means you've served a third of your sentence. So um, these men had very, very long sentences. 20, 30, 40 year sentences. Mm. But they did have the hope that they would get paroled at some point. Possibly, yes. Right. There were a couple who were never going to be paroled who were... Um, but you know, they did have some kind of end in sight. But um, what what I found interesting was working with them, and it took them a long time to kind of get into forming some kind of coherent self, some kind of inner core from which to write, um, was slowly as that formed, what they wrote, what they expressed, was in such contrast to the sort of external circumstances of their lives. So what struck me always is I would read this stuff and mm. um, that they had written these stories about their childhood, stories about relationships with other people, with an object that they remembered, with an interaction in the prison, for instance, with a loved one coming to visit or whatever. Slowly those became more and more authentic in that they expressed something experienced and then remembered and then written down. Many of the experiences when we first started were how they imagined an experience would be, something they'd seen on television or something that they'd read. So there was this mm. kind of focusing down to... The self. A, a self, mm. their own self that responded to another person or a situation. So that it's, they felt that that topic, as time went by, became more worthy of being written about? There's something very specific about a male prison. You know, you were 3,000 violent men incarcerated together 24 hours a day. So, so the, the sort of general ambiance is not... It's not a tea party. It's not a tea party. It's, it's, it's really, you'd walk in there and you, you could feel this kind of force field of aggression. Um, and South Africa as well is a very macho society. Prison's a kind of exaggeration of that. But they would come in there and they, they reminded me of those women in the 18th century who wore those met farthingales under their dresses. The self was external and very, very hard. It was like a carapace. And any kind of contact with that would be reacted to with aggression. So the softest touch to a blow would be perceived of as the same. There was no differentiation of scale of contact with other people. Mm-hmm. So they would react with this terrible kind of aggression all the time. Slowly over the year that I worked, I had this feeling that this hard shell formed and internalized into some kind of a spine into some kind of internal strength which allows a person to differentiate between experiences, between different kinds of contact. To me that's the writing self. It's a space within the self to which you can sit and measure what's happening to you and assess it and respond to it appropriately. appropriately. You talk here about resisting the inertia that creeps into the bones. What do you mean by that? The inertia that crept into their bones. A lot of them suffered this sort of long-term depression. And why wouldn't you? It's nor- it would be normal. It's completely normal. You've had a completely disastrous life. You've committed unbearably violent crimes. 
There's no therapy. Maybe they're psychopaths. It's interesting. The psychopath. People often say to me, you're dealing with psychopaths. When I organized this with prison officials, I said I couldn't deal with more than 15 people in a class. I have done adult teaching before, and above 15, you lose that um, intimacy. Yeah, it's the same with a book club. If you've got more than about five or six people, it just it's comes too, out. Yeah. yeah, and so I planned very carefully how I would interact with these men, that it would be a peer teaching situation. They would be each other's audience, not me, to deal with this sort of inappropriateness. Quite a few of them were in for quite violent sexual crimes as well, so I wanted to set up a system of boundaries right from the start. So I had 15. In the beginning, there were two men who fell out, and they, I thought, were psychopaths. How one would think of a psychopath. When you meet a person and you feel there's nothing here, there's mm. nothing but ice. There's no guilt, there's no conscience. There's no guilt, there's no conscience, there's no human being to reach. And those two, and I knew that they would fall out very quickly because they wouldn't be able to deal with the way that we interacted and the way that I was going to work with people and the way that people had to share and empathize with each other. Because I did a lot of writing exercises which involved putting yourself in the skin of another person, even if it was the person sitting next to you. Mm -hmm. And they fell out very quickly. I was very relieved. And they were replaced by two other people. Now, a lot of the, especially with the younger prisoners, they had been convicted as juveniles. So they were sort of between 18 to 25. Mm -hmm. So they'd committed very violent crimes when they were teenagers, being many of them through the prison system from when they were eight or nine years old. They had that depression. They were completely unmothered, unparented, and still children. I mean, someone 18 to 25, not even an ex-child, you're still in your growing phase, really. They suffered very much from that depression, that inertia. You're 20 with a 20-year prison sentence ahead of you. How do you rehabilitate? What do you do? Etc., etc. How, How do, do you, you overcome the hopelessness? Exactly. And part of what I thought that the writing did for them, which countered that, was it gave them a way of reimagining their pasts, of imagining it for the first time, looking at themselves, and a way of writing the future. You know what I mean? They could make up scenarios. That like a dream. Dream and plan. Yeah, you say here that writing provided them with a way of imagining what kind of men they are, what kind of boys they were, outside of the overwhelming nature of their crimes and their very lengthy sentences. It also gave each man a space in which to assess the script of his past, to write a future for himself, and to represent himself as he would like to be seen. Is that you imposing your thoughts on what happened, or do you really think this is what they did? I'll give you an anecdote, which was probably the seed of those thoughts. Only two anecdotes. A, a lot of what these men have suffered is no father figures, for instance. No father. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like sociology 101 mm -hmm. for idiots. You go into prison and it's like social idiocy. You see what's gone wrong. No fathers, they abuse mothers or abusive mothers and unpaired. They go feral, these boys, at about and eight And no eight. love from their mothers either no, or fathers. No love and nobody who saw them as a child and said, this is you and you're special. There, there were some who had experiences of that, either with a mother who died or an older sister or usually mother figures, a grandmother. And those men were much easier to work with because you could go back to that space of recognition and nurture. It's like going back to the warm, exactly. the honey. It's kind of honey, but it's also a place in which you were present and recognized as a human being. This sounds a lot like psychotherapy. I know, I know. I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm a writer, and I'm a really vicious writer because I like people to write well. 
and to express thoughts precisely. And I think perhaps that's what worked for me with doing it as a writer. I'm, I'm not a therapist, although I, I mean I read psychology books. Is that part of what I wanted them to do was write good po as well as they could, and for me, writing well is writing with precision. Mm -hmm. And if you get somebody to write with precision, you have to analyze your feelings, your thoughts, your experiences, divide up an experience, and you get your kind of truth in there. The story I wanted to tell you about the scripting. I'd taken in a pro I used to use lots of other writers' work you know, as a starting point of seeing how people had written. I read this wonderful poem uh, called My Father, which is by an American poet, I can't remember now, and it describes a little boy waiting for his father to come home on Friday night, payday. Father comes, very excited, but father's been drinking, dances with the boy, it goes wilder and wilder, and everything's rattling, the mother's standing on the outside. And you know that, you know, the sort of Friday night alcohol working class father situation. The threat was there, and these men related to it very directly, as you can imagine. And it provoked some very, very interesting work about their own father's and the loss, of, you know, the absence of the fathers. And there was one young man who had never read in class. People used to read their own, read, but I, their own work, but I didn't Force make them. Yeah. No, it was if they wanted. He'd never read anything. He was covered in tattoos. He was a member of like the most, one of the most violent prison gangs. I couldn't hear his voice, his accent, his body language was all this kind of gangster stuff. He, he just blurred himself, and he. Um, always sat right in the front, like right next to me, it used to unnerve me a bit. And this day, all these men were reading this stuff about their fathers and not fathers, and he said, No, he wants to read. And he stood up, and he stood up completely straight, back straight, hands stopped moving, doing this sort of gangster signage stuff, just stood completely still, looked at all the other men in the group and me, and he read a poem about himself being a father. He's only 22, and his failure to be a father to his son his little boy of about six and his failure to buy nappies and how he'd wanted to love him but he didn't know how and how he'd wanted to do this and, he, and it was this chill because he actually said what all these men had failed to do themselves they all were fathers and they'd all failed completely and he read this thing and it was the most moving thing and I said to him afterwards he was quite sort of shaken at having done this and I said to him afterwards do you see your son and he said no his girlfriend had no contact with him obvious reasons he, I can imagine yeah, fear as much. Fear, yes, because I mean, most of these men were lots of violence in the family as well. And I said to him, "Why don't you send that to her? She can read it to your son." Anyway, it was just before the Christmas break. I came back after Christmas, and I was asking. I'd been on holiday, asking people what you know what had happened and how they'd felt, and not a nice thing to ask people how Christmas was who'd been in jail. And he said to me, he said, "My son came, and he'd sent the poem to the the wife and his mother and the girlfriend had brought this little boy." And I said, "How did it feel?" And he said, "My son came, and he sat on my lap, and he said I can feel where his body was on my chest." And for me, it said a whole lot of things. The, the fact that he could express a feeling through a body memory, he had enough connection back with his own body to be able to relate to this little boy and hold him on his lap and show affection. The fact that he'd been able to communicate sufficiently with his ex-girlfriend. And also that that little boy, I mean, he must be in the most abysmal circumstances as well, but he had something concrete which shows that his father wanted to love him, even if he didn't. So it was a, for me, that was a real moment of progress, and for this young man, because after that, his more and more stuff came out. It was more and more that feeling of being located within his own experience, not this kind of wild 
chucked or experience of life. And false persona. False persona, this sort of shell. madly heroic notion that was a boy with a broken heart who managed to talk to his son. It sounds to me like this process is melting away the ice that surrounds mm. these fragile souls. I mean it was a very difficult process. It was. I mean it's interesting if you're interested in in Jungian things. Most of us our shadow self is very dark and very frightening and very you know it's sort of the monster under the bed under our psychic beds. Which was interesting to me because I saw a Jungian therapist myself while I was doing this work. To help well, I I started halfway through yeah because I started getting these terrible migraines and it was oh. I couldn't oh so for your own well being yeah and with them their shadow self is this golden child you know what I mean it's the yeah, lo- it's, it's the repressed self is this this idealized um, perfect self and I realized that what helped them when I talked about imagining your past imagining the boy they were is in writing the the process of writing autobiographical writing for instance even if it's a fictionalized autobiography like a third person thing as the writer you can go back into your childhood and be alongside mm-hmm. your abandoned self yeah i mean that's a, that's a sort of a technique isn't it to go back yeah. and and to parent your exactly. your child Exactly. The way that you wish you had been parented. Or even just to witness what happened to your to your small self. And to accept that it wasn't your fault. Yes, to accept to to acknowledge that it happened and that that happening is linked to your present moment. I mean, for a lot of people, there these guys in particular, there was an absolute severance between what had happened to them, what they'd done, where they were now, and how they were going to move on. And what I observed in, the, in this prison is that because there's no therapeutic work done with psychological therapy, mm. there's nothing which allows them to integrate what they've done. And that's why I think we have these terrible recidivism, is yeah. that you go out with the same monsters. Well, this is my next question. You did it for a year. Then what? They pulled the plug and... I did it for a year. I did a workshop after the Francho Plattery Festival had a program in the in the prison with writing. To take the writers into the prisons, yes. right? As yes. well as schools and yes. other places. Yes, community, community stuff. And the prison, that particular prison and other ones, has quite a strong rehabilitative program and they try to get people from outside to do much work and stuff. They're very, very strapped for cash like most public services here. Whether you agree with it or not, our prison system is designed to rehabilitate. Sometimes I look at this and I think it would have been kinder and more honest to have sentenced these guys and shot them in the dock because there's this kind of veneer of rehabilitation and, and stuff. And what happens in the prison, it distills the horror of what has been done, mm-hmm. the perpetrators. I mean, these guys, I don't think they should be out. They should need to be removed from society. But they then released with no... They haven't integrated what they've done at all. And so it's a bit like the way that soldiers fighting in Vietnam yeah. came back and were dumped on the streets of yeah. San Diego. But nothing. Nothing but nothing to acknowledge what they've experienced and, mm. and what they've done. You know, what, what is available in prison are volunteer fundamentalist Christian groups, like these reborn Christians and sort of proselytizing Islamic groups. So what happens, in my opinion, is that they'll go in and say, confess your sins, do this clean slate, we erase everything because you've confessed in the Lord. This person has this moment of elation. Many of the guys I had have been doing these programs because mm-hmm. they are seeking peace and absolution. It's well, as that. you say it here, they, they're, they're seeking community and love. Yeah. Prison isn't exactly the... I mean, we all seek that, I suppose. So 
the process of writing, mm-hmm. I, I would think that the the real sign of progress would be that these men continue to write and and continue to learn about themselves mm-hmm. and accept what happened to them and I suppose maintain faith and hope that when they get out they can live the lives that they've imagined. Mm. It's a way of self-management. I mean a couple of the younger guys told me that, because their cells are very overcrowded, they told me that they would get angry and they want to fight and then they would sit on their bed and write, write out the emotion. Write the fight. Write the fight. Yeah. And write why they'd been so and realize that they didn't need to be so angry. Mm. That it was just you could stand back and then you could stand back. Maybe the guy just like bumped, bumped your thing. You know, whatever. There was mm. they had that sort of perspective again. How many of them are writing still? I wonder. I mean, is it something? I that don't they, know. Do I mean, they continue the program or not? They wanted to continue the program. I couldn't continue the no, program. No. It was too exact. It was exhausting. I would go there. I would get a migraine as I finished the the thing at twelve o'clock. I would start get this headache like a sledgehammer, which would then last till the Tuesday so I'd get the whole weekend I'd have this like blinding headache and then it would lift Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and I could feel it starting and I it was so obvious like obviously a psychic headache and I realized what I couldn't hold in my brain was the humanity of these men and what they'd done and the, the, the impossibility of this one guy was 19 who'd had three murder convictions by the time he was 16 couldn't it couldn't fit in my head, you know, I could find, I mean, I'm not a sociologist and I'm not a, a psychologist, so it didn't, I couldn't integrate the two experiences, so it took a toll on me physically. What do you mean you couldn't integrate them? In my mind, I couldn't find a way, I couldn't find a solution for putting together the pain that I would feel when I was with these people and also the pain of the crimes that they'd committed. Because crime in South Africa, our experience of crime is very immediate. I'm also, ironically, the patron of an organization called Rape Crisis. So I work with rape survivors and people who deal with that. And here I was working with the... Per- the other side, the per- perpetrators. Yes, yeah, so, so the, the way I worked it out afterwards is that people also here have a great phobia of crime and a terror yeah. of it. And it's well, like you, look at the, you look at South African literature, it's rife with fear of rape or yeah. interracial violence. Exactly, or, and yeah. it's... But funnily enough, my fear of crime vanished after I'd done worked with these men because what I realized, how I solved my headache, was before you had this fear of this tsunami of violence, which is combined with guilt and anxiety and the instability of the society that we have and the kind of unsettledness. And it just felt it was faceless. It was like 500,000 men in prison for blah, blah. You know what I mean? It's too overwhelming. I worked with these 15 men and each one, which was interesting to me, is that I couldn't remember their names in the beginning and I'm very good at name, face, place, individuating other people. could not remember their names. And then suddenly I remembered one guy's name and then the next one and then, the, and then I had all their names and their names are not seared into my brain. And I realized what had happened is that I remember their names when they became human, human and a person enough to be able to respond to me as themselves. Then their names cohered to them. It was the mm-hmm. most interesting experience. And I, could, I would say to myself, why can't I remember them? Why is it? I've worked with them for months. And at that time, actually, I did something with them because they would come into the classes and they, 
they were extremely well behaved, extremely um, orderly and quiet and very, very respectful. So there was no physical fear. And I worked with them completely by myself. There was no mm. wardens in with us or anything. Mm. The couple sort of hung around outside. And they would come in and, and there's a gang system in the prison called the number, the number gangs, which are have this whole elaborate kind of hierarchy of uniform, imaginary uniforms and status and stuff. And eventually I said to him, I said, you know, when you come in here, you've got to leave the number outside. You've got to leave the gangs outside. And I looked at me and then the next time I saw at the door, they would come to the door, touch their shoulders and drop, it literally dropped this imaginary uniforms that they wore um, that makes up the hierarchy, left them outside. And then they came inside. After that, it could work very easily because they, I think, maybe trusted the situation enough or, or felt secure enough within this the, how we were working to leave this other identity outside. This was obviously very difficult for you to do. Mm. And so... Why did I do it? No, not why did you do it. Of course you're going to say it's worthwhile doing and we should do, be doing more of this, right? I think so. I mean, it's making them what you want to be able to see with this... Yeah program is, is results, the long-term results, but you're not going to be able to see that until they get out and reintegrate into society or go out and continue killing people. You know, a few people have interviewed me and asked me, so is this the solution to poetry, is a solution to crime? And I do, yeah, I can think of a few mm. poets that I would make mass murderers read as punishment. <laughs> yeah. I won't mention them on air. Yes, who are they? <laughs> No, I can't do that. South African or... Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, you should no. Come on, who? Well, the, one of the people... Longfellow or... Yeah, that would not be a good one. And sometimes I do love certain of T.S. Eliot's po poems. poems. But there are several I could think I would make a murderer read them forever and try and explain them to me. That would be a punishment. That might be. Yeah, a and that wouldn't that wouldn't help them in the least. No, no, no. It would be purely punitive, punitive poetry. Okay. There is a place for that. Sorry, let's get back to what, yeah. what, what the question was. Is it useful? Yeah. Is it? Is it? And how do you? No, it's. Um, this is the answer to your question. Okay. <laughs> how to? You know, how to measure it? Can you do it with other people? I think it can be done, and I think it should be done. I actually gave a workshop in a women's prison in KwaZulu Natal now, which was a very different experience working with women, I must say. More cooperative, I'm sure. And so empathetic. much more cooperative, gentle. Yeah. They should be leading our countries. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the, the feeling in the prison was one of nurture and... But what I set out to do with these men was not just write individually. I set out from the very first workshop, I said, we're going to make a book. Fifteen of you and me, we're going to make a book together. So that was that gave them a goal. That and was the goal because I work, I've worked a lot with men. Men like to have goals. Well, they yes, like we to do. Well, when a woman complains about something, the man wants to fix it. Solution. And the yeah. woman typically doesn't want that. She just wants she to wants be understood. To now I have a bit of a man brain. I want. I like to make things, and I like to get things finished and done. They know we're starting now, and in one year's time, at the end, we're going to have a book with all our names Perfect. on it, and yeah. we put it in. So they worked individually, they wrote, the, so I could trick them into, in a way, writing all this internal stuff because they were going to make something that they put all together. Well, that plus so the fact that it, this gets to the whole point about inertia. It's not all the same. You're you actually know, you're doing, doing something, something. And you have... And here's the proof. Yeah, and I used to, I've taught publishing before on how to make books. So what we do, I said, this is our end goal. These are our intermediate goals. We need this by this and this 
these products by that time and you're going to all edit and select your own work so you need to read everybody's stuff in order to choose so there was a lot of externalized really genuine group activity that mm -hmm. had to happen it yeah. wasn't fake it wasn't made up it wasn't role playing they were making a book and that gave them a great deal of focus so that when they wrote about their dads or about how they missed their girlfriends or how they you know wished they could touch a woman's body or what the things they wrote about, it was acceptable to write about it because they were making a book and they promised in the beginning. That is something that can be replicated in a prison system because most of the work that prisoners do is to make them tired at the end of the day and it's utterly pointless. And human beings, no matter how ill-educated you are and how stupid you are, you know if what you're doing is pointless. Just think of a lot of bureaucrats. Well, I'd rather not. Mm. I'd rather think of my prisoners. <laughs> no, but think of no, how, no. You're right. How, it's how hollow it can be. How, you know how it's busyness, busyness work. And so for for them, we we did that goal orientated thing was very important in the beginning. It's interesting. It became less of a crutch as we moved further along. The wonderful thing, though, is that, and I'm holding it in my hands here, is that these people, these men, now have this as proof. It's, it's yeah. It's something that they can proudly uh, present and show off for the rest of their lives. If you have a look on my website, there's some Which pictures. www.margieorford, M-A-R-G-I-E-O-R-F-O-R-D.com. There's video footage of the launch of the book with them reading oh, and receiving, receiving their books. It was just the most... To have been a person who's only ever destroyed, yeah. and then you hold something in your hand that you've made with other people because to me making books is collaborative you know it requires a whole yeah. team of people to do it and you have to compromise and plus you've got their signatures on each one of their uh, works here i did which again with is an artist self the idea of self yeah, yeah. We, we did with an artist friend of mine she came and ran a couple of creative painting workshops in which okay. we did a whole narrative thing with art around creating setting and then making a story that happened in that. Many of them, their education levels were not at all high. So what we had to do was make concrete co-narrative works. Setting, character, place, distance, perspective, other people. And doing it with, we used huge big two meters by one meter pieces of, of, piece of paper. Mm -hmm. So you could really like get out and work and we used ink and wash, mm -hmm. which is not something you can control easily. So they had to work with something that was kind of uncontrollable. Work with something rather than against it and get dominance over the... But what they all liked was pencil crayons, drawn outline, colour in. It seems to me then that in addition to the uh, therapeutic value of, mm. of writing, this is a very important part of the puzzle. I would think that instituting some sort of publication within the, the prison system that, that comes out regularly would be... Uh, could be an amazing thing to do. And wh that was one of the things I discussed with mm -hmm. them. I mean, to keep it going. Yeah, to, for them to keep... The, the, the way that I work when I work with people is to shift the location of responsibility from me to the people I'm working with. So they take it on. And then for them to think of ways in which they can carry it on, like a newsletter. I mean, we I didn't have a publisher until a month before the end of the project. Oh, dear. So you've been making all these promises. No, no, I made no <laughs> promises. I made no promises. Well, you, you told them they were going to come out with some I said we were going to make a publication. Right. And that... Oh, that it, you didn't promise them that it would be published no. commercially. No. 
what I said is that we would make a book, mm -hmm. work on it, scan it, and make enough copies, like photocopies, like old Somerset Soviet Union style thing, where you make enough copies that they could have one and send them to their families and keep them in their library. For me, there's a big difference between making a book that is readable and then the publishing, you know, the publishing distribution is, is another thing. The objective of this was to work collectively and make something that other people could then see. So then I did get the publisher on board and they were amazingly generous. I think they really saw... Jonathan Ball, yeah. Jonathan Ball. They saw mm. the, the merit in it. Sorry, this was published in 2008, right? It was published in 2008. All the, What we also discussed from the beginning is that any profit from the book would go back into any kind of community project like this because it, to me it was just unethical to have people in prison who are making money out of, I don't know, just yeah. wrong. Yeah. So, and it's, it was a... I did that as a volunteer. You know, I mean, the whole thing was voluntary. It was a non-profit. It's a small space that where you don't do things for money, but you do things for gain. Other gains, hard to measure. Perhaps we can conclude by you reading a piece in here that uh, you, you choose. Strange feeling of, the, of being in that peculiar space with them. I'll read a piece that I was telling you, the little story about the Clayton von Koller was the young man who wrote the piece for his son. It's called The Father's Pain. My body was not there when you were born, but my heart and soul were there. I am not worthy to be called your father. I couldn't afford to buy or send you nappies, but I tried to send you my love. Maybe it was commotion that led me away from you. It's not your fault, just mine. Through my mother's and father's journey, I hope I will be something in the future. My mother used to give me her hospitality, but that was taken for granted. People say that we learn from our mistakes. Before you learn from yours, just be on guard to learn from theirs. My father, even if you scheme to get away from my mother, I don't blame you, but I know out there you are thinking of me. Through chains, pains, gates and jails, I have learned to be your son and you my father. Remember me when I say that one of these days I will be set free to let you play your role. You are my mentor wherever you may be. It was not a mistake you went away, but was part of God's plan. People rejoiced when I was sentenced, not knowing that I was sent here for a reason. A father is a caring man. He walks around the earth like the sun. He is obedient, caring and supportive. But where were you? If you are a father, treat your loved ones with love. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Margie Orford, who is a crime novelist, award-winning journalist, film director, and author who was born in London, grew up in Namibia and South Africa. Like Clockwork is her first novel. She lives in Cape Town. Thanks again. Thank you.